this is what her breed is. She's a West Asian village dog. That's her breed. That's not a breed. So I'm glad you <laughs> said that because on the frequently asked questions on the website, it says, so what breeds are in my dog? The answer, in a very real sense, West Asian village dog is the actual breed of your dog. <laughs> what? Cool. Would you also like to know the characteristics of a West Asian village dog? It's from West Asia. They serve as trash cleaners. Lives in a village. Sentinels. And even sometimes companions while still retaining much of their freedom. And I was like, cool. So I have a trash dog. <laughs> trash. trash dog. That's what I have. Lucky for her, she's been getting called trash dog for the last uh, <laughs> week and a half now. Nice. By the way, it's like fairly accurate. She is <laughs> lightly. Dog is trash. Interested. Oh, she's definitely a trash dog. But she's like definitely only slightly interested in companionship. Very much likes her freedom. And as you can tell, barks when, you know, a gnat walks by the worst part of it is they were right they were <laughs> right gonna... they're absolutely right i like that enough people have west asian village dogs that they have like an answer on their website that's like this is the breed of your dog so sorry yeah i got one on my dog that was um cocker spaniel german shepherd akita mix hmm. <laughs> think about the physics of that one wait the cocker spaniel akita which is just like a giant husky Right. And a German Shepherd. And I'm just trying to figure out the math here. How does that work? You know, maybe it was after a national championship game. They all went out. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> love is love. That's Liz Hanna, everybody. What a, what a segue here. She's got an amazing ability to write and to create amazing stories and storytelling. She also is a huge Hoops fan. Didn't know this about you, but you're a huge Carolina fan, Liz. I grew up a huge Carolina fan, went to Wake, so I've kind of tossed that to the side. I used to have NC carved into my head when I was a kid. You also are a big NBA fan, so let's just kick things off here. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haber, so that's Amin El Hassan from the Levitard Show, Sirius XM NBA Radio. Here we have Liz Hanna, who is a Golden Globe-nominated uh, screenwriter, producer from The Post, from Long Shot, from Season 2 of Mindhunter, The Girl from Plainville, which is probably coming out soon. We're going to make it this year, so good. fingers crossed. See it next year. And I'm waiting for your third movie after Long Shot. What is the next basketball analogy movie title you're going to create? So you have The Post. Oh, that's a good call. You have Long Shot. Huh, what can I do? Eight-second violation. Eight-second violation. I have this thing. I hate basketball podcasts because they're all inevitably some terrible pun of something in basketball. The give and go, the, you know, the 24 second shot clock violation. I mean, here's the thing, right? Is that I'm a Carolina fan, so I guess it has to be secondary break, which I feel like I could like work in somewhere to- Four corners, maybe four corners. Four corners. By the way, these are also the names of like our Wi-Fi networks in our house. It's like one is four corners, <laughs> one is secondary. I'm not even joking. So, you know, everybody who lives near me, that's us. That's that's us. <laughs> Let's dig into uh, Roy Williams first because that's the biggest news. You are a big Carolina fan by way of what? People don't know this, but Liz and I went to the same high school in Westport, Connecticut. Shout out to uh, Staples High School. Go Wreckers. At the same time? Go Wreckers, same time. She's 03, I'm 04. I'm wildly older than him. Her class was my cousin Katie. Mm -hmm. So where did the basketball come from? I was always a sports fan. I was always, I played softball growing up pretty competitively. And, and I was a basketball fan. My mom was at UConn while I was a kid. And so became a very big Huskies fan super Diana Taurasi, like how can you go wrong? That's a really good way to get into basketball. I was watching them. And then in terms of NBA, it kind of started with coaches for me. I'm a big fan of coaches. That's kind of where I gravitate towards. If, if I don't have a team, you know, or if like my team gets blown up, I'm going to stay with my coach. And I was a huge Greg Popovich fan. And so then a big fan of his coaching tree. And so then I became a big Steve Kerr fan when Steve Kerr went to coach for the Warriors. So that's sort of how my NBA world has kind of adapted. My husband and I keep looking at each other like every other day. I'm like, we have to be Lakers fans now. Do we have to be Lakers fans now? I think we have to be <laughs> Lakers fans now. Like, it's just this weird thing that I love LeBron. You just love Frank Vogel. Just say it. You just love Frank Vogel. 
Yeah. <laughs> I do think he's a really good coach. I'm just a big LeBron James fan, so it's hard to end with what this city has gone through in the last year with losing Kobe and, and then what everybody's gone through in the last year during the pandemic. Like I think his leadership has been really impressive and outside of being an incredible athlete and been admirable to see him try to do his best in the wake of Kobe and really, I think, show respect while saying like, we're here, we can, we can still do this. And then Carolina. So my husband went to Carolina, his entire family went to Carolina, his parents met at Carolina. So when I started dating him, it was like, you know, fever pitch when they meet in the off season. And then he's like, I have to tell you something. Do I know fever pitch? (laughs) That was basically what happened was we met in March and it was right after Carolina was eliminated. So he wasn't watching. I mean, he was watching, but he wasn't like invested anymore. So it wasn't like a thing that had to come up. And then went through the whole year. And then the season started and it was Marcus Page's sophomore year. It was a big year. This was my team. These were my guys. I had Marcus, I had Bryce Johnson, JP Tokido was on that team. Oh, yeah. It's a good team. James Michael McAdoo, two time ring winner. Former Warriors, great. That was where it started. And then, like, it was really good for me. Because we had a great team. So we made it 2016 and we shall not discuss that. And then we won in 2017, which like Zags and Bruins fans, get one of your players to tattoo redemption on their arm and then just talk about needing redemption all year and you guys will make it back. I'm telling you. (laughs) That's all it takes, huh? That's all it takes. It's that easy. Get a Joel Berry to tattoo it on your arm and physically lift the team for six months and you'll get there. Anyways, that's a very roundabout way of how I became a Carolina fan. I want to go back to being a fan of coaches because teams get uprooted. Don't coaches get fired a whole lot more, get uprooted a whole lot more than teams getting blown up? Not when you're a Greg Popovich fan. Not if you're Greg Popovich or Seeper, like a Gino Ariyama. Like the thing that I admire, and it's different in the NBA, right? It's harder in the NBA because you're dealing with adults and money, although we can have that college basketball conversation. I think it's really impressive when... Coaches take a four-year player. They either convince a kid to be four years or they make a kid that was an okay basketball player, a four-year player. Like Malcolm Brogdon, I think, became Malcolm Brogdon in many, many ways because of his coach. And you can't really take that away from Tony Bennett, although I would love to. (laughs) No one's asking to take it away. We just said, can we get Malcolm Brogdon some money? Yeah. (laughs) While we're doing that? Can we have a conversation of what, the Bucks were thinking. Oh, I don't understand. I don't understand. It might not be the Bucks there. I mean, Malcolm Brogdon also has some agency there too. I'm with you, Liz. I thought that didn't get enough play is that they extend Eric Bledsoe and decide to part ways with Malcolm Brogdon and trade him to Indiana. And I felt like Malcolm Brogdon's the better player. Does that mean they're going to win the title with Malcolm Brogdon? No, but I think that was an underrated move there in the whole story of Milwaukee. I don't know. You look back at that year, like, I think that's who they keep trying to find for Giannis is like a Malcolm Brogdon and they had him. And so, Hey, guess what? When you have a good player who fits, pay him. Guess what? Pay him. Put the money up. Show me the money. It's funny because they ended up paying Drew Holiday. A kajillion dollars. Yeah. You could have had Brogdon for less money. I'm happy for Drew, though. I feel like he got, he was always kind of like had the short end of the stick. He got paid, though. (laughs) That short end of the stick. It worked out for him. Yeah. Got paid. It's Justin Holiday that I cry to the heavens for. Why does Justin Holiday, why always a bridesmaid and never a bride? Why does Justin Holiday just get getting passed over? He's a guy, he defends, he shoots threes. He's a great locker room guy. He's got a championship pedigree play for the Warriors actually played minutes in that championship run but no love for Justin for some reason nobody loves Goliath (laughs) and that's what this program is going to be about and has always been about we're going to show up we're going to show up we're going to show up to shoot around we're going to show up to practice North Carolina is going to show up every game every day every second every possession North Carolina will be there so you're double thumbs up on Hubert Davis? Ugh. My household, he was Hubie. I was a huge Carolina fan, and we loved – because he took a picture at UNC basketball camp with my brother, and so number 44 became just 
a legend in my house. Big, big thumbs up for Hubert Davis. I was just watching his press conference before I came on here. We were just talking about Coaching Tree, and I think everybody within the Carolina family for years had been hoping it was going to be Hubert and hoping that Hubert was like ready for it and felt supported, I think, to, to take that job. I also think that one of Dean Smith's wishes for a very long time was to have a black head coach at UNC and having Hubert Davis be the first black head coach for the men's basketball team is significant and should not be lost in this conversation. I'm really excited about what he was saying during his press conference, which seems like a little bit of a, I don't know, it felt like it it kind of explained Steve Robinson leaving, I guess, a little bit, which is the bench is going to be all coaches who have played at UNC. Mm. So he is filling the bench with players who've played, he said, under Dean under Bill Guthridge and under Roy. I mean, do you think she's going to take the job to be an assistant at Carolina? Never, never, never. Uh, we need she back in our lives. I mean, I'm telling you, he doesn't want to like, she's a different guy, man. He's just the kind of like, cause he did the coaching thing for a little minute and he's like, I don't like it. He don't like it. I don't think he likes it because you understand, like he's like a, a genius, man. <laughs> and like trying to explain to people <laughs> who don't want to listen, that that's that's a little bit too much for him to swallow. But I was wondering, Liz, do you think Stackhouse is kicking himself? Like if he had just held out a little bit longer, that could have been his job? No, I don't I don't think so. Like, I mean, I think I think it was always Hubert's job to lose. I don't think it was anybody else's job to win. I think it was gonna be either Hubert's to lose it or to not want it. He just had been there for so long. And, you know, he was saying in his press conference, just like the amount of time he spends with the guys and the amount of time, you know, he spent with Roy. And I think being the top recruiter there for years, I think there's a lot that has gone into to him being the right person for this. I wish Stackhouse was winning a little bit more. That would have, I think, made it a slightly more competitive situation. Who's going to succeed at Vandy? Like Vandy's tough. It's a tough situation. Tough. The Wake Forest of the SEC where it's just like you're sledding uphill at that point. It's academic school, man. Yeah. Like a real academic school, not in a Carolina where they're doing your homework for you. Yeah, that's right. I take All shots right. around here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I didn't go to Carolina, so <laughs> you're not shooting at me. I tried desperately to go to Carolina, and I did not get in. Out of state, trying to get into Carolina is like trying to get into Harvard or an Ivy League school. Yeah. I mean, I make jokes because I went to art school. I went to Pratt in Brooklyn. It's not only that I didn't have homework that like could have gotten me into a scandal. It's that like my homework was like a drawing for 12 hours. <laughs> I had intramural sports. I think maybe we had a track team. <laughs> that was the other easy thing was that when I got swallowed into this, when I joined this Carolina family, very luckily and happily, it wasn't like there was competition. <laughs> Before you met your husband, were you, what are you, were you a UConn fan or were you just kind of like, I love basketball? Definitely women's basketball, UConn, still is UConn. I didn't really follow men's college basketball because I watched the NBA and it, it's not an either or, but I just didn't really have a team and I didn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that I was like, okay, now I'm going to give up another round of Sundays and Saturdays for this. And then having Roy Williams be the coach when I started watching, I think was really important. And I'm a huge Roy fan. For our anniversary this year, I gave my husband a signed UNC basketball that was signed by Roy Williams. That was his anniversary gift. I'm a great wife. That's impressive. Lots of points there. Yep. (laughs) That's a pretty good gift. Thank you. I know. Did you have to use like special Hollywood connects to make that happen or? I just went online. (laughs) I went to ebay.com. Have you ever heard of it? I just went online. (laughs) I didn't. I wish. No. You know what? I was really bummed about is that I'm going to production this year and we're going to be shooting near Chapel Hill. And I was going to get, I was going to like, we're going to get the whole team, like team, the whole crew, the cast. I was like, we're going to get it. We're going to go to a game. It's going to be great. And look, we're still going to go. It's not like I'm going to say, but I was just like, oh, I won't be there. It was a little. Oh, come on. Maybe he'll, he'll come back and there'll be oh. like a standing ovation. That's when I'll use my Holly connections. I'll be like, Roy, you've never met me. You definitely haven't watched Mindhunter. <laughs> I would really love for you to come to the game. Please. <laughs> that would be nice. Trust me, you'll love Mindhunter, but still, please, please come. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, can you answer this? Because you're you're in the film industry, and I've always wondered. Homeland was taped on my street in Charlotte. Then it left after one season, and I couldn't figure out why they chose Charlotte. Is it just purely tax breaks? It's a lot of different things. It's So it's tax breaks. It's also dependent on like what you're shooting for. Like for Mindhunter, we shot in Pittsburgh, but it took place obviously in Baltimore and DC and Atlanta in season two. But it's just like, how much can you encompass in sort of the area that you're in that will play for 
Atlanta or we'll play for Baltimore. And we were also shooting a, sh- a show that took place in the, I think our season was like six or seven years throughout the course of the eighties. So you have to dress everything to look like it's period. Mm. So Pittsburgh is really beautiful and has really historic areas that you can kind of make look like that for Homeland. I'm sure it was a lot of like, we have to shoot something for this and there isn't anything in North Carolina that we can make work. And so we'll go elsewhere. Wasn't the next season they were in Iraq and shit? <laughs> I don't think they could pull that off in Charlotte. Yeah, I think they were in Beirut. And the season after that, they went to Germany. Again, Charlotte doesn't look like Berlin, buddy. I'm sorry. I just spoke with actually one of the producers of Homeland. Just so funny, the last four or five years, they were just shooting all around the world. It was crazy. Like they were in Morocco. They were in Germany. There's like a bunch of places they went. And I was like, I want that job. That sounds great. <laughs> that sounds really fun. Is Location Scout a good job? Because it sounds like it could be great or it could also be a nightmare. I think it's kind of like any of these things. You got to love it, right? Like you just have to love kind of the grind of going and looking at locations and trying to be very specific, but also probably not having the amount of specific guidance that you want. Like a lot of times I'll not know what I want until I see it, which is really frustrating or can be very frustrating to somebody whose job is to find that for me. (laughs) So it's kind of like narrowing it down as you go. Right. Location scouts that love their job, I think it's the best job ever because you get to just go to all these different places. and have to go to this bar and just see if it matches the description of here. Hang on, let me taste the beer. I'll just check it out. Yeah, exactly. Didn't like the vibe. Didn't like the vibe. We got to try again. So Liz, <laughs> I wanted to know your origin story because we obviously went to the same high school. Justin Paul went to our high school. He's one Emmy away from getting a, an EGOT. Yeah. I don't know if you always aspired to be a screenwriter or be a producer in Hollywood. So how did you go from like Staples High School in Westport to I'm going to get Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg to do the movie that I dreamed of. It was super easy, right? That was a, it was a straight line. And I knew exactly what I was doing the whole time. No, I knew that I wanted to work in film. I didn't know what that meant. Like I was a huge fan of movies growing up. My mom and I would go to the movies every week and my parents would just watch anything. And so I just was exposed to a lot of different filmmaking very early and I didn't really get it. I didn't know that it was filmmaking. I was just like, I want to do whatever's inside that box. Like that sounds fun. Yeah. And telling stories. I was a big reader and I would write, but I I didn't really think of that as a path that I could be successful at. A lot of it was on insecurity and not feeling good enough to be a writer, which is all bullshit because if you want to be a writer, you're a writer. It's not like a club. Yeah. I went to school out of undergrad. I immediately went to grad school at the American Film Institute in LA and I studied producing. Again, I didn't feel comfortable enough as, as a writer. And I also had been interning for a long time and had seen creative producers. And I was like, oh, I, that I feel sort of close to what I, I can do, you know, is that I want to be very involved in the creative process. I like problem solving. So I was like, okay, this feels like a good fit for me. And then out of grad school, I got a job working at Denver and Delilah, which is Charlize Theron's production company. And I was there for about almost six years in development which meant I was reading scripts all day and giving notes to writers and talking to filmmakers and you know just basically trying to get our scripts to a place where we could make them and, and finding other things for us to do. A couple of years into the process, I was just really burned out because I was reading mostly, and this is not an indictment on anything other than it's really hard to write a good script. I was just reading really bad scripts. When you say bad, do you mean bad as in just the overall idea? Is this a bad idea or the execution of that? Like it's a good idea, but then the dialogue is just trash. Execution. For sure, execution. I'm a firm believer that like every idea has been made. There's seven original stories or whatever. So I mean, I'm sure somebody genius, you know, I was just watching Knives Out this morning and I was like, well, Ryan Johnson, I'm sure could figure out a new story that ha- doesn't exist. But for me, it was all execution. And for a variety of reasons, either like the dialogue wasn't good, but the plot was really good or like the dialogue was good, but the plot was really sloppy. It was just sort of like all these things. A lot of exposition. And the thing that was happening while I was doing was I was learning to write. And I didn't realize that necessarily, that like reading yeah. scripts that don't work. Oh. Yeah. It made you figure out. I didn't realize that I was giving myself like a masterclass in, I don't want to say like how to write, but it's how I learned to write. It was learning what didn't work and almost more importantly, what I didn't like. And like what my taste was, because sometimes I would read a script and somebody liked it and I did it. And so then you kind of have to go back and forth of like, well, it doesn't mean that the script's bad. It just means it wasn't written for me. So I went through that process. And then I realized sort of a couple of years in, I was like, I think I really want to try this. This is something I'm terrified of, but that feels good to be a little afraid of it. 
And then I wrote a script and I sent it to my boss at the time and the woman who has now been my manager and producing partner for the last seven or eight years. And I was like, if the script's any good, let me know. And if not, I'll be fine. But I just like want to know. Handing that script off, Liz, sounds so like nerve wracking. That's a lot of work that you put in. It was horrible. Like I write an article, it's like 2000 words. How how much is a movie script? Oh, I have no idea. I went to art school. I'm not good at math. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't know. Like I feel like everyone looks at that word count. Page count wise, it's 120 pages-ish. You'd never done it before. Yeah. You do a full fucking script. And you hand it off to your producer, your boss. And that moment must have been like terrifying. It was super terrifying. It was also like a personal script. It was not the post. It was about like my family. And so that was, I mean, I made poor choices here. It was like, I set myself up to fail really, really, really poorly or really well. (laughs) And then they both read it and they were like, this is really good. You should try to do this. Oh, It was a very positive response. And then I was young and naive. And so I was like, okay, I'll just quit my job and be a writer. That sounds good. So I did that. And that was terrible. Wow. Not terrible in terms of, it was exactly the right move for me to make. I wanted to be a writer. And I do think I needed to be that scared and learn like, this is hard. But I was thinking like, oh, this will happen in like a year. And then, you know, a year went by and then another year went by and then another year went by and and it didn't happen. And in those years that it was not happening was when I was writing the post and, and thinking about it and sort of trying to figure out what the story was. Cause I was really obsessed with Catherine Graham. I'd read her memoir, personal history, which is amazing when I was in my early twenties. And I just wanted to figure out a way to tell her story. I was really impressed by her. And so I sort of spent years kind of just thinking about it. Literally years thinking about how you were going to tell that story without writing it. Yeah. How many drafts did you go through before you were like, this is the one and you turned that in? My first draft was 165 pages. And then that quickly got cut down. And that was, that was I I probably did like maybe like five of it, five drafts, four or five drafts. It wasn't that many because I had been thinking about it for so long that it sort of like coalesced. Right. Once I opened the door and was like, I'm going to actually do this, it kind of all came together fairly quickly. And then there were like endless drafts through production and development and all of that. So, but for me personally, I think it was like four or five drafts. The thing that I had been doing instead of writing that, which is what I should have done, is I'd been really afraid and insecure and nervous. And I'd been chasing what other people were writing. I was seeing, you know, like, oh, a movie about a couple that broke up got made and sold. So like, I'll write that. You know, like I was trying to put myself in a box that I thought was, this is what a successful writer is supposed to do, or this is how I'm going to get read, or this is what my break was. This is what's hot right now, or this is what people are doing, interested in. Yeah, exactly. Like I was reading the trades, like, oh, movies based on this is popular. Okay, let me go find a book that's like that. And none of that was working. And I got really fed up. I was really frustrated. My husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, because I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I think I'm not good enough. I can't write the things that I want to write. And my husband was like, well, you can write the thing that you want to write. Go write the post. That's what you should write. So I did. And so that was like March, I think. I finally decided to write it. And then I we sold it in November. Wow. Put a pin in that. (laughs) I got it back to that. But you said you kind of tried to copy the wave of what everyone else was doing were you actually writing full scripts and do you think they were good but just not good enough to get attention or in retrospect do you think like that was dumb that was that was not a good script no they weren't good probably the dialogue's fine in some of them and things like that but it wasn't my best it was just not where i felt comfortable give me a synopsis for one of them let me think about it the first script i wrote which is not a bad script but is just a very small movie is about father's 70th birthday and the three estranged daughters that come home to celebrate it with him. And as they arrive, his wife leaves him. And so they are sort of now forced to oh. spend this weekend together and figure out what's going on. It's like Knives Out, minus a murder. It's literally, I, you know what? I've been saying that for years. It's exactly like Knives Out. That's, that's how I should have said it. Ryan Johnson, you hack. You just ripped off the whole thing. <laughs> no, absolutely. This movie is like a tiny little movie where there's a lot of people fighting and, and lots of scenes of like 18 pages of conversation. So that's one. Love it. The other ones are just too bad. They're too embarrassing. Oh, I want, no, that's those are the ones I was digging for. I wasn't looking for the ones that are actually good ideas. But they're not embarrassing because like the plot is embarrassing. Like they're embarrassing because they weren't well written. Oh, okay. And again, it's not like that they were bad. It was just the best way I can equate to this is to make a terrible basketball analogy. 
but it really is like trying to have Jim Beheim coach the Tar Heels, like taking his system of how uh, he coaches to UNC. Right. Like it's not that it's bad. She is good. It's just completely different and it's not in his wheelhouse. Right. That's the way I think about it with other writers who I admire. And when I look at things that they've done and I'm so impressed by them, I feel jealousy just because I'm human and I'm like, oh, I'm so excited for them, but damn it. But it's not jealousy where I'm like, oh, I could have done that. Yeah. Truly. Like I look at Knives Out and I'm like, Knives Out is genius. It's really brilliant. It's fun. It's different. And I think it's only something that Ryan could have done. And so when looking back at those other scripts or even in the last five or six years, scripts that I've decided to do, those scripts are always the hardest ones to write for me. And they always end up being the least successful. The ones that are the most successful for me are the ones that feel very natural and comfortable. And not that I'm in a comfortable position writing them because usually I'm very uncomfortable and they always get personal and things like that, but feel like things that I'm pushing myself in a natural way rather than like trying to go write, you know, Terminator. I'll be back. Would you ever go back to one of those that you may look at now as kind of like wasn't good enough and try to make it good enough? Yeah, there's a pilot I wrote about a year before I sold the post trying too hard to be Mad Men. It was right after Mad Men had ended and everybody was trying to make Mad Men. But it was a really good idea and it was really cool. And so I think now with some distance, I could maybe look at it. But Matter Men. I also, did you say Bad Men? No, you said Matter Men. Matter Men. Which is just even worse. (laughs) Bad Men is actually a really good, I like that. You know. For the makers of Mad Men, Bad Men. That exactly is why I get paid the big bucks, because I just came up with Bad Men. (laughs) But I also think like there's an importance in letting things go. Because if you kind of get obsessed with it, and even as I'm talking about it, I'm like, ah, it served its purpose. I learned a lot from it. And now it's time to see what else I can do elsewhere. I want to ask you. When you were on set with Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Meryl Streep, did you want to go up to Tom Hanks at any point and just say there's no crying in baseball? <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Oh. Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No! No! And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball! No crying! It's funny that you picked that, weirdly, because that's my favorite Hank's performance. I love him in A League of Their Own. I think he's so good. And I told him that one time, and he was like, uh, he was like, really? Liz, I had you like up here in my head. I think he thought I was trying to kiss his ass, but I was like really meant it. And then I was just like doubling down because I was like, Jimmy Dugan's great because like you did this and you did this and you were funny and then you were sad. And like, I could see his sort of wheels working of being like, I Philadelphia, Forrest Gump. <laughs> I was like this 30 year old kid just like talking about a league of their own. But no, he he's the best. He's so, I was so lucky with that. Not only just the caliber of people, I mean, obviously it's the best of the best, but how good of people they are, that was really great. We once interviewed Hassan Minaj. He's from Sacramento. He said his favorite team growing up was the Sacramento Kings, and he's a huge Kings fan. We're like, who's your favorite player? And we're like thinking Chris Webber or Peja or Vladi. And he said his favorite player was Bobby Hurley. (laughs) Oh, my God. That was his favorite player. And, you know, Bobby Hurley's the head coach at Arizona State. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm trying to get him, like, a Bobby Hurley autographed Kings jersey. That's awesome. As a gift. Because it's just like, how many people walk around saying Bobby Hurley's their favorite NBA player? He's not a Duke fan. Like, it's one thing if you're a Duke fan and your favorite player is Bobby Hurley. Like, oh, oh, you lo- oh, you love big Duke fan? Like, no, Sacramento. This is like somebody going around saying their favorite player is Christian Leitner. Like, no, nobody's favorite player in the NBA is Christian Leitner. Sorry. <laughs> it's like someone saying that Tom Hanks' best movie was, you know, League of Their Own. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what? I stand by it. I stand by it. But no, he's great. Liz, who is the biggest or biggest closeted NBA fan in Hollywood? Ooh, that's a good question. Or Hoops fan. So I know like Spike Lee, obviously, or... Ashley Judd. They don't count. We don't want the obvious one. Adam Sandler. Like, we know this. We know this about them. But is there anyone that you've, you've started talking to and you're like, oh... Oh, you know who Marcus Page is? Or like, oh, you know who Bobby Hurley is? I don't get the Marcus Page one a lot. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Love that kid. Oh, just a good kid. I bet I would put money down right now he gets on the bench. Maybe not this year, but in the next few years. He's going to be an assistant coach. 
for sure. Closet Hoops fans, a lot of writers, a lot of writers are huge basketball fans. I mean, this is not closeted because he's making the show about them now, but Max Bornstein, who wrote Godzilla and has done a number of like huge, huge movies. He's doing the Showtime Lakers show. Showtime, yeah. At HBO and is like an enormous Lakers fan. I have a throwback Lakers warm up that I got years ago and we both put it on during the finals this year and we were FaceTiming because he was so excited. But I would think you'd be surprised how many writers are really big fans of basketball. Why do you think that is? My husband would like to say it's the best drama on or off the court. I think basketball is a very dramatic soap opera in many ways. The fact that there are no helmets and that they're not standing 250 yards away or, you know, that it's a very intimate. Such an intimate sport. Gathering. It's authentic. You're watching the bench. You're seeing the coaches. You're seeing, like, everyone's invested. You're not just watching, like, Belichick walk up and down the line. Like, Jalen Suggs goes from, like, jumping on the table, D-Wade, Kobe Bryant style, to two days later, just a puddle. Gonzaga has time to do something. Suggs for the win. I that was just a rough game. It was just a rough game. It's also hard because, like, how do you come back from that UCLA game? For me, that was the best game of the year, and so like, I don't, I don't know how you sort of can top that. And you, how do you top that that three? And I don't, I don't know. It's it's tough, but they all just looked sick. Like they all looked weird. They kind of looked off. All of Gonzaga did. I don't know. It was. I feel bad for Jalen Suggs. Baylor just balled out. I mean, they, their defense is so crazy. They're also big in their experience. They had a couple of seniors. There's one senior that starts for Gonzaga. I don't even think there's a lot of seniors that play. I don't. I don't think they're they're on the bench a lot. So because they have a pretty tight what like seven eight round of people that uh, of guys that play. Um, like Timmy's uh, sophomore, which is insane. He looks like he's 45. At least 45. If I saw a picture of him. He's got a mortgage. He's paying tuition. I would say over under at 42. He definitely has a mortgage, like two kids. He's celebrating his 12th anniversary with his wife. Like I'm fully on board with that. But yeah, so I feel like they're just really young and and that's a bummer because Suggs is gone as he should be. Do you think Timmy drinks PBR or Miller Lights? Miller Light. PBR when he was younger in his wilder days. Now it's a Miller Light guy. Mm. Michelob Ultra sometimes. Michelob Ultra when he's on a diet. Yeah. <laughs> got to get back in shape. During the season. That's, that's what he's drinking. You got to fit back into the tux to renew our vows. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, the intimacy of the game is I think what is very inviting to writers and creators because it's kind of like being able to have the drama, but you don't have to be a part of it. It's a reality show in a lot of ways. I mean that in not a demeaning way. I mean that in like, we know these guys, we know their lives. They're very outspoken. And so it, it feels more intimate than football or baseball. Do you know, Liz, I don't think Amin has ever told this on this show, but his theory on Teen Wolf as being a racist movie. Super racist. No. It's a racist allegory for the fetishization of white people for the black experience. So think about it. Scott Howard is white. He plays basketball. He's not very good. He's not good with the women. Social outcast becomes a werewolf. First of all, all of a sudden knows how to cross over, go behind the back door, no look passes, windmill dunks. All right. That's one, right? And then two, becomes cool, goes to school. Everybody knows him, loves him, starts breakdancing. Hello, goes to the school dance, creates a ridiculous dance, but all the people look at it and say, I'm going to start doing it too. We're going to go to the werewolf. Everything opens up for women. The women are throwing themselves at him, goes to the bowling alley. Mick, who is the big villain in the movie, starts saying some really thinly veiled racist stuff about how I shot your mama for stealing chickens out the coop. And oh, yes, yes, all of this. Not your mother, your, your mama. Your mama, yeah. People are asking Pam, which is the evil girl that he goes out with and then asking her how she can go out with him and all that stuff. And she's like, oh, it's so great and alluding to his sexual prowess. Eventually, he turns everybody off because he's a showboating hot dog, right? And the way they come back and he wins everybody over and wins the state championship is what? By turning back into a white guy and playing the right way, passing the open man, taking charges, diving for loose balls. And so the moral of the story is it would be fun to be black for a little bit, but trust me. You want to be white. Wow. I can't discount any of those things. <laughs> or, I watch Teen Wolf a lot. So. I was also going to say, you seem very intimately aware of <laughs> every event that happens in Teen Wolf. 
Like you're like, I've seen this a number of times. Don't get me started on T-Wolf 2. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Bateman, right? Isn't that Jason Bateman? Yes. That's Jason right. Bateman's first okay. movie. Oh. Stop. Really? Yes. Because the movie was produced by his father. Wow. Everything you're saying is it's online. It's facts. Welcome, King James. I am the king of this domain. This is the serververse. What'd you do to my son? Where's Dom? The only way you're getting your son back is if you and I play a little basketball. Pete, send this clown to the rejects. Wait. What is this? I'm a cartoon? What's up, Doc? Liz, what did you think about Space Jam trailer? I'm really in. Look, I'm in. Like, I'm in. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that, like, we went cartoon and then we went back to LeBron. Thought the same thing. Like, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, he became, like, a Looney Tunes LeBron and then became LeBron. I was sort of like, why did we do the Looney Tunes middle one? But <laughs> I also have only seen two and a half minutes of a two-hour movie, so. Two hours? Good Lord. Space Jam is not going to be a two-hour movie. <laughs> Here's the thing I will say that I, that I really liked about it, though. It gave me, like, throwbacky Space Jam vibes, mm-hmm. where I was like, this feels like something I'm going to watch. And I feel like Twitterati and... Twitterati? <laughs> oh, yeah. Film, Twitter, and all this is, like, going to give the movie shit. And it's like, this is a kid's movie. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it really, like, it's a kid's movie. It's intended to be for kids. That was what this first Space Jam was for. It was for kids. So can we rate it on the scale of what that is? I feel like you're already playing defense on Space Jam right now. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> let the movie be. Let's all watch it. I'm in. I like the brow. I like what they did for him. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a little grace. And let's watch the movie first. How would you describe LeBron's uh, acting chops from what you've seen so far in his various appearances? Train wreck. I mean, I'm prepared to do the post too with starring LeBron James. So, <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. It's got to be the post too, Electric Boogaloo. Done. Done and done. I am ready. I do think it's interesting. Like, I mean, I haven't seen the original Space Jam in so long. But just, I mean, with LeBron in particular, he's been in the public eye for 25 years. Like, we know everything about him. So I did have a weird thing where I was like, that's not your wife. I was like, that's not your kid. Yeah. yeah. No, is that weird? I was like, that kind of looks like one of your kids, but that's not your kid. It's not your kid. But isn't that weird that, like, we know LeBron's family so well? Yes. That's what killed the suspension of disbelief. Me too. Not cartoon characters. A hundred percent. Uh-uh. That's not Bronny, and that's not Savannah. (laughs) I was literally, I was like, that's not Savannah. What are you doing? (laughs) Who is that? So, yes. I mean, I think that's, like, really weird (laughs) that we all know that. and. That speaks a lot to our culture and social media and just how exposed he is and they are as one of the most recognizable people and families in the world. But I mean, you're 100% right. I was like, go to the Game of Thrones planet, go to any planet you want. I got it. You're a Looney Tune. That's not Bryce. I know that's not Bryce. So I'm I'm out. I like the fact that there's going to be little Easter eggs in the movie. Maybe the trailer is more Easter eggy than the actual movie because they're trying to get, you know, people to be like, oh, that's Damian Lillard with the watch on his shoulder or like Anthony Davis is big. It's amazing. I think that's going to be in terms of rewatchability of Space Jam or just intrigue is going to be just picking up as an NBA fan, picking up on those little things. Yeah. And also like as a movie fan, they went into the vault and they got the rights to like a lot of different stuff. So that's, I think, going to be fun. Iron Giant. Yeah. Oh, Iron Giant. Where he's writing down this, the names of all the cartoon characters, Superman. And then I realized they're all Warner Brothers characters. So yep, that makes sense. Yeah. That's exactly what they did. They were like, the Warner Brothers vault is available and open. Come enjoy. So what about the Lakers here? So you're, you're worried about the Lakers? They're still, I think, considered favorites to win it all. I am down on their chances simply because... Where's LeBron? Where's Anthony Davis? And until they, they come back to the court, I'm just going to naturally say they can't be the favorites. So what's your what's your feeling on, on the Lakers right now? Andre Drummond especially. I want to hear your hottest Andre Drummond take. Does anybody have a hot Andre Drummond take? <laughs> That's, she just said you're a hack. Yeah. <laughs> that was a hack question. Yeah, Liz was just like, that was a hack question. My feelings about the Lakers are mixed up in my feelings, my ire towards another team which is the Brooklyn Nets, which is, I think they are beatable. I think in a seven-game series, nobody knows what can happen. I think in a five-game series, nobody knows what can happen. But are you fucking kidding me? 
Like, just what? And I know, like, they are all injured at various times, but there's three of them, so you only need really one. Like, you just can swap who's on the bench and who's not. And then you've got LaMarcus Aldridge. Like, what are you doing, my man? You haven't played for the Spurs in four months, and now you're just going to be there? Oh, this is the pop Uh, loyalty here coming out. Don't get me started on my Spurs for, like, the last five years. I'm, like, very upset. I'm very upset. I'm having a Roy Williams, Greg Popovich situation where I'm just like, players, respect your coach. Listen to your coach. He's smarter than you. He's done this a few more times. Ooh, are we going to open up a vault of anti-Kawhi sentiment? Yes, let's go. Let's go. It's not anti, it's disappointed. Oh, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointed, Kawhi. Do you feel like what's happening with the Clippers, do you feel a little like told you so? I mean, I just don't believe that you can have a winning team and have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George be your only winning players. I just don't think that's a roster that works. I don't know. I want you to blame Kawhi. I want. That's a- <laughs> yeah. I will blame Kawhi and saying like, what are you doing? My man stand Tor- like, okay, leave the Spurs going to stay in Toronto. Right. Like what do you do? Like you come in Clippers. Really? I mean, you're from LA and you went to the Clippers. Riverside motherfucker. On purpose. He had a choice. He said, no, no, I'm going to go this way. I know he did. Do you feel like the Brooklyn Nets are stacking the deck is what you're saying? You're just upset that they're just too good? I think they're too good, but I think that the thing that's scary to me is that those are three players. I mean, I would say aside from Kevin Durant, although we all know the last year with the Warriors was dicey. Grow up. Yeah, you grow up. Come on, bro. But I would say aside from him, like those two other guys are guys who can't play with anybody. (laughs) I've never thought they could play with anybody. And the best players I've ever seen in my life can play with anybody. Cristiano Ronaldo can play with any... Michael Carrick sucks. (laughs) Darren Fletcher sucks. Why are you stabbing Michael Carrick? I'm making a point. I'm making a point that Ronaldo didn't have have Xavi. Ronaldo didn't have Iniesta. Zinedine Zidane could play with anybody. And he did it constantly at Juventus for France. Real Madrid scoring in the final at Hampton Park in Scotland. He could play with any Ronaldo, fat Ronaldo from Brazil, could play with anybody and win. That's greatness. That's a goat. That's a guy you respect. Fraud. And now they're somehow making it work that all three of them can play together. <laughs> and so that's upsetting. I'm a Celtics fan. I'm really pissed off right now. If I'm a Rockets fan, I am irate right now might not be a Rockets fan if I was a Rockets fan I might just have given up by now the 20 in a row really puts a damper on the word fan doesn't it I don't know we've all watched James Harden play for years I've just never thought he could get to that next level like he always gasses out he always slips on the floor at the wrong time or like decides not to play defense for two games I thought you were gonna say years there but that's okay I'm about to say two games it's a little longer like the Western Conference Finals he was a great for two or three games, and then you just stop playing defense. And I was like, come on, man, man. So I don't know. That's what's scary to me is that they somehow figured out how to play together. And that's a very, very scary team. Favorite young player, right? So if I gave you Luca, I gave you Zion, I gave you Trey Young, and I gave you Bam Adebayo. Interesting. Luca, no question. No question. I don't like Trey's ball hogging. I think he's got to figure it out. Zion needs to figure out how to work with that much weight or lose it. I just think he's going to blow out both of his knees in the next 24 months if he doesn't figure it out. Hope not. I really like Bam, but I I think Luca is the future of this league. I think Luca needs one more piece. This is a serious question. Do you think, because you're in Hollywood, you sell dreams. Do you think it's possible to have a face of the league, not a franchise, a face of the league who is not an American player. Yes. And I think that that is the best possible situation. And I think the same for Giannis. Like you've got, if you've got Giannis and you've got Luca, that these are the like sort of the faces in the future of the league. That's the best case scenario because it's people who have grown up admiring. I mean, Giannis is the stuff of dreams. Like Giannis is absolutely the stuff of dreams and amazing. Yeah, what he can be as an ambassador globally for the league. And and I think same goes for Luca is really important. And I do think if we just stay, which we haven't, I mean, truly, like everybody's gonna make fun of me, but like, look at the Spurs. Like, look at what the Spurs have done for 25 years of international play. Greg Popovich being the face of men's national basketball has been an important part of that recruiting. So hopefully, I think we can continue to stretch internationally and, you know, need to 
be able to travel again. That would be nice. I think in the same way that we were talking about you as a, as a writer and trying to have your voice, your perspective, not try to be someone else. I feel like the next phase for the NBA, they can't find the next LeBron. Mm-mm. They got to find a new story. Mm-hmm. They have to have a new story. And so I feel like Giannis and Luca growing the game internationally, I feel like is a natural pivot from what we have with LeBron. Yeah. I mean, I think we tried that with Zion, right? I mean, Look, he played for Duke. I watched a lot of Zion that year when he was his one year in college. And he was scary. The only way we won was he blew out his sneaker and then couldn't play. That was the only way we won one of those games. Like if you wrote a movie script with that, people would be like, that's ridiculous. There's no way that... People would think that's absolutely ridiculous. And then that you say that the stock dropped because he blew out his sneaker <laughs> the next day is so insane to me. But like... He is an exceptional player. I remember he had this block. It wasn't against us. It was against UVA, I think. Where he blocked a three-point shot. Never mind. Zion Williamson with other ideas. That is called a recovery. And he was under the basket and he ran and he jumped and he got it. And like there was such explosion and finesse in his ability to do that and didn't commit a foul. That was the first thing that I saw that I was like, oh, this is terrifying. Like this guy is really good. And I think what we've learned is something we've all known for a long time. The NBA is really different than college. And I don't think any 18-year-old should have that pressure on them the way that he had it on him. And he was bound to be injured. His injury the first year was going to happen. He's not tall enough to be that heavy and play that way. Favorite Carolina player ever, non-Michael Jordan category. I mean, Vince is really close. Vince is really close. I love Vince Carter. That's a good pick. I love you, Vince. Used to draw you. Ah. Kate wins at style. Yep. <laughs> that makes him feel good inside, I bet, knowing that. That doesn't make him feel uncomfortable at all. No, he blocked me on Twitter, Liz. This is a running gag. He blocked me on Twitter. And I don't know why, and he was my favorite player growing up. Vince Carter? What? He blocked you on Twitter? I mean, like, works with the guy and, like, hangs out with him on set, and he won't he won't step up for me. and like. I'm not jeopardizing my relationship with Vince. That's fair. That's fair. <sighs> I like Tom. I don't like him that much. <laughs> you were drawing him Kate Winslet style. Creep. Yeah, seriously. By the way, if you've been wondering why he blocked you, how many times on your show do you talk about that you used to draw him Kate Winslet style? This first time. Okay. Because I was going to say that could be a reason. Aren't you working with Kate or something like that? I am. I am. I wrote a movie for her called Lee, which is based on the life of Lee Miller, who was a photojournalist during World War II. And she was the only woman on the front line. And she was the first person to photograph the concentration camps and go onto the trains and try to get those published, which I didn't realize until I was working on this movie that there was a huge push from the governments in Europe, from various ones, to not expose the truth of that because they felt like everybody had gone through a lot already. So they were like, Everybody's gone through a lot. We don't need to tell them what really happened and also how much we screwed up by not getting involved earlier. That was such a hard pivot, and I'm so sorry that I brought that up. Excellent job, Tom. (laughs) That's okay. You went from Vince (laughs) Carter to concentration camps real fast. To the Holocaust. It's a dark one. But here's the thing I will say is that I've been working on this movie for a few years, and it's like a passion project of Kate's. And she's amazing. And, and Lee Miller herself is amazing. And so I'm super excited. Ellen Curis, who um, is a director and a cinematographer, she was the cinematographer for um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So she and Kate have known each other for a very long time. She's going to direct it. And I think we're supposed to shoot this year. I'm not sure, but I'm excited about it. I wanted to give Amin the ball here. Can you tell Liz your podcast that you do Cinephobe? and ask what would be a Tom Hanks eligible movie. Liz, I have a podcast. Anthony Mays, who's our producer here, is the producer on that podcast. Zach Harper's our other host. And we review movies that are poorly rated on Rotten Tomatoes. We try and figure out whether this is an accurate poor rating or maybe they didn't get a fair shake, right? And sometimes we find some movies that are legitimately great, and I just don't know why. Either the critics were little turned off by it or the fan vote was bad and then sometimes there are these movies that are just abominations Mm -hmm. i mean jupiter ascending battlefield earth after earth basically anything with a scientology spin to it we try to get guests who are connected to these projects to kind of talk about and have a little fun about it unfortunately everything you work on is just too good so (laughs) that's not gonna happen has Tom Hanks ever done a cinephobe qualified movie? Bonfire of the Vanities. Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, Joe versus the Volcano. You know, Volca- there's a lot of love for that movie out there. Just going to throw that out there. 
There's a lot of love. I do know that this movie, The Lady Killers, absolutely qualifies. I saw it. It was terrible. It's also a Coen Brothers movie. I think this is really interesting that The Burbs is on here, which is 53% critics rating, but 71% audience rating. Those are always fun. So where's the disconnect there? That's interesting. One of the games we like to play, we keep track of all types of numbers the different Rotten Tomatoes ratings, the box office, the international box office, because some movies won't do well here, but internationally, they'll kill. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite things, and May's back me up here, is when we see the massive variance between what the audience saw and what the critics saw in either direction. Maze, what are some of the worst ones we've had, the most drastic spreads? Biggest gaps? Yeah. Well, Wet Hot American Summer, which you're obviously a huge fan of. I mean, hate that movie. Beloved by the fans. See, I love Wet Hot American Summer. Good luck, Chuck. 5% by the critics, 57% by the fans. Is that the um, the Dane? Yes, Dane Cook. Jessica Alba? Yes. Gone in 60 seconds, 26% critics, 77% audience. I'm with you, the 77%. I'm with you. Gotti, 45% audience. Liz, can you guess what the Critics thought of Gotti, starring John Travolta. I actually think I saw this number recently because it's like ten oh percent, or it's like lower. Oh, what a generous guess we had! Is it two percent? Try again. Zero. Zero percent. Ooh. We actually got someone who worked on the movie. He agreed to come on the show under the, the basis of anonymity. He would not reveal. He didn't want his identity revealed, but he, he gave us all types of tidbits. Like they ran out of money, basically to raise money. They sold speaking roles in the movie. So there are all these people who are terrible actors who are they just there because they paid to be in the movie. Shout out to E from Entourage, Kevin Connolly. I know he directed it, right? Yeah, he directed it and it was his passion project. Ugh, bummer. I mean, it's so hard because like, here's the thing. Doing anything is really hard. Making movies are really hard. Getting a script sold is really hard. Getting a director and cast attached is really hard. Getting that movie made is like really hard. Even when movies aren't good, I feel that it's only a few missteps here and there that makes it a good movie or a bad movie. You know what I mean? And it's like- Really? I mean, some are just bad, but like- You still want to watch Gotti? But I mean, really, truly, it's kind of like not the right person cast or not the right person directed or the script wasn't good enough or it's like they were going off on this tangent and they should have gone on this tangent. Like, I think for most movies that kind of come out and you're like, eh, it's like that, you know what I mean? Where it took one more thing to either make it really good or really bad. It's like if Harrison Barnes played for the Warriors, he's a championship player. But if he's on the Kings, like he's not going to be considered one of the... Love HB. <laughs> Love HB. Tom, I'm glad you brought it to basketball because I was thinking about Liz's catalog. I was going to ask you about, do you know when you're making a bad movie that it, it's going to be bad? But then I thought about your catalog. I was like, this is like asking Magic Johnson, do you know when your team's not going to go to the playoffs? Like what playoffs? We're going to the finals nine out of my 12 years. I'm Magic Johnson. What are the telltale signs? Or I guess when you're in production for whatever the movie is, regardless of who's attached as far as talent, as far as director, whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you have vibes as far as how the production is going? Or is it just one of those things where it's like, I think we did a good job and then you'll find out the finished product later. Yeah, I mean, you really don't know. At least I don't. You know, you get dailies every day and you get selects every day. And I find it very hard when I'm in production to then like detach myself enough to watch dailies or anything to be able to evaluate it. It's sort of like, you go numb almost at a certain point and you're just like, I think that sounds good. Sure. Let's try it. You know, I mean, I I think it's, it's a kind of, again, it's like a moving target and it's like a living thing. It's like playing a sport. You're just like trying to be aware and constant every day in production and present so that like when a curveball happens, you can respond or when something's not working, you can respond, but you don't really know. I, I mean, at least I don't. I've been really lucky that I've made things with some people that are ridiculously talented. So I had a pretty like good feeling about the post. Was it Steven Spielberg? Or... It might have. <laughs> was it Meryl Streep? That was a really hard movie to make. We made that in 40 days, 40, 45 days, which is pretty small. This shortest amount of time that Steven's ever made a movie. He signed on in January. We started shooting in May. We wrapped in August. The movie came out in December. Why so fast? What the accelerated schedule? It was very much a response to Trump in, in many ways. It was our personal sort of way of 
talking about the press, responding, I think, without having to ever say his name. Also being like, this was a real thing that happened in history. This can happen again. In a lot of ways, it was our each of our individual responses to that. And so that made it really hard. And that was where then I was like, I had a feeling, but like, you just don't know when you're shooting that fast, that compressed, and the movie comes out that quickly, like it's whiplash. You know, I, so you kind of can't tell if it works or not. Was the villain in Longshot basically Trump? Yeah. You're laying it on pretty thick there. And I was like, this guy feels very Trumpy. Well, he's not, tr- I think he's, it's more Steve Bannon, really. Yeah. The guy behind the scenes, you know. Tries to blackmail and all that. Yeah. Like that movie, for instance, I love working on that movie. And it was like the whole team was so amazing. That was completely dependent on whether or not Charlize and Seth had chemistry. And that was like, we just didn't know. Like we just couldn't, mm. we couldn't know until we knew. And so it was like writing the scripts, you know, we were kind of, we were like all in Montreal prepping the movie, like rewriting the movie every day and writing some of these fun things and like the romantic things and things like that. And we're like, we hope it works. <laughs> it's like, we don't know. Then I, like, I got a call from, or a text from the director, I think pretty early on. He was like, it's going to work. We're going to be okay. And I was like, great. <laughs> As the writer, do you ever feel like a coach where you, you drew up a play and then they go out there and they just, they're not running the play the way you drew it up? Yes. Uh, and you just kind of hope it works. How how do you how do you feel? How does that lack of control feel? I guess terrible. <laughs> it feels really good when who you're working with totally gets it. It's very rare that it's happened to me that I'll watch something and be like, "That was totally not what was intended." And then that's also on me. If a director and a cast can't interpret what I'm intending to be in the scene without talking to me, then that's a problem then I'm not being clear enough in what's happening. Or there's a disconnect between me and the director where we're not on the same page of what should be happening. It's funny you made the coach analogy because I actually, the girl from Plainville is the first show that I'm show running like officially. Basically, that means that you're like, you're just in charge of everything and it's all on you. But it's very much like being a coach. I have a team of writers that I oversee. I have a team of production and creative and everybody. And it is really one of those things where you kind of have to like let your little babies fly sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to see this. I can't do anything else. And you have to kind of feel comfortable with it. But yes, the lack of control is not great. You have to really trust the people you work with, which is, you know, has become for me one of the things of how I make decisions about who, about what project I'm doing is I like working with David Fincher on Mindhunter. I grew more as a writer and as a filmmaker in that I think it was like a little over two years that we were working on that show. And so much of it is about specificity and being comfortable at saying like, I don't understand either what you're asking from me or what you want to be happening here. And the freedom to figure that out while also being conscious of the sort of greater plan. David is not a writer and doesn't write. I would imagine that that also is very difficult for him where he's like trying to convey what's in his brain to me. And then I'm trying to write it. And I'm not in his brain. And he's not in my brain. Liz, I want to get you out on this one. Jonathan Groff, better performance, King George in Hamilton, Mindhunter as as the character Mindhunter, or would you say also Kristoff in Frozen? I love Groff. Like, I love him. He's so amazing. My one Groff story is that we were in Pittsburgh doing rehearsals before production. And every day we're just doing read-throughs of, of the scripts. And it was like early. We were starting, I don't know, like eight or ninth, whatever. And every single morning, Graf came in like with a huge smile on his face and super positive and like, isn't this amazing? This is what we get to do. And I was like, dude, it's fucking snowing outside. It's, I'm really cold. I'm tired. We're going to talk about serial killers. But he's just so wonderful and like truly like a light person. Having said that, I'm going to take Mindhunter out because I feel like that's 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 a red herring. You're accusing yourself. For me, I'm going to just recuse myself from that. The very obvious answer is King George. There's no question. He's so good. I loved him as Kristoff in the video game Kingdom Hearts, so that's just me. <laughs> wow. Deep cut. That is a deep cut. That was a really deep cut. I just love that in Frozen 2, they were like, oh, you can sing. Oh, yeah, we should probably give you every song in this in this catalog here. Oh, you're Jonathan Groff. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Copy that. He's so good in Hamilton, though. As King George, like, it's the most fun I feel like anybody's having in that show. The fact that the spitting thing, the saliva thing, is actually just a little tick that he has. Like, he, it's not like, uh, it's not like he, he meant to do that. 
Yeah. He salivates. That's the thing, I guess, for King George. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you have any last question? We, we gotta, we're running out of time. We've already kept you for way too long, Liz. So thank you for doing this. All good. This was awesome. I just hope that one day if you fuck up and make something bad, you'll, you will come on Cinephobe <laughs> and we'll talk about it. But until then, like, I guess thanks for coming on Haver Show. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to hope not for that. But I will come on and like talk about something that I haven't done. Oh, okay. Well, we're Mace, put it down. I'll do that. I'll come talk about like a Hanks movie or something like that. We do themes this year. We're doing themes every month. Month one was Nicolas Cage. Month two was Black History Month. Month three was Arnold. This month, we're doing Oscar winners. So not movies that won Oscars, but Perfect. Oscar winning actors who were in bad movies. So. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good one. I like that. We might call on you soon here. Yeah, hit me up. Because I would really like to not wait until like I make a bad movie because that just feels like I'm putting <laughs> weird energy out into the world. <laughs> but I'm like, no, I'll totally show up after I make a bad movie. Fingers crossed. Liz, thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, guys. This was so fun. This was great. Awesome. I appreciate you. Best of luck with everything. Happy Friday Productions. Oh, my God. Thank you. Woo. Let's get going. <laughs>